Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am not your normal host. My name is Andrew Warwick, and I'll be a moderator of a very special episode of the Particular Baptist Podcast, where we'll be debating the issue, is the Texas Receptus the preserved word of God? Sean Jetham will be taking the positive position that it is the uh, preserved word of God, and uh, Daniel Vincent will be arguing for the negative position. Um, so, uh, why are we debating this topic? Well, the Bible says that every word of God is pure, so Christians should desire to know the exact words of God, not just their general content or the names of the books of the Bible, which we all do agree on. We, we all hold to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we agree with all the essential core doctrines and the number of books of the Bible and their general content, but we should desire to know also every particular word because God inspires each and every one of them. Um, every word is, is picked with choice. Um, also, besides the precise form of God's word, the issue of the Texas Receptus strikes at another issue. How do we know what the precise words of God are when there are textual variants? How do we determine which of the variants are authentic and which ones are spurious? And with what level of confidence can we say that the variants we believe are authentic are authentic? These are all issues that we hope will come out over the course of this discussion. We hope, listener, that you'll get two things out of this. One, that you will uh, that you will come away with a greater understanding of the topic, that you will understand the arguments for both sides better than you have before, and you will consider it in more depth. Uh, besides that, we also hope to model how brothers can disagree on important issues in an amiable fa uh, fashion that does not um, impede our fellowship with another. Um, Dan and Sean host the particular Baptist podcast every week. They're on the same line, like over and over again. And this is just one area where they disagree with, but it doesn't uh, impact our ability to love one another as brothers in Christ, to be members of the same church of one another and to hold to the same confession under the same elders and under the authority of the same Lord and savior. So we hope that that will come across uh, tonight. Um, and uh, with that, I also want to give us a, a uh, disclosure here. Um, so I'm not unbiased. Uh, there's no neutrality, as Jeff Durbin says sometimes. Um, I do agree with Sean's view that uh, that the Texas Receptus represents the words written by the apostles and is the preserved word of God. And I believe that is what's referred to in chapter one, paragraph eight of our confession. That is my belief. So I'm not unbiased, but I do not plan to interject in this debate, except to make sure people are staying on time and are debating with uh, debating in accordance with the rules that we uh, had agreed on beforehand. I have no intention of being the Chris Wallace of this debate, uh, but if I ever appear to be uh, unfair in my moderation, uh, well, now you know my position on it. Uh, so I wanted to be upfront about that. And now just briefly, I'll say the outline of the debate. So we have two 10-minute openings. Sean Chetham will go first with the affirmative, then uh, Daniel Vincent will follow. And then we'll have two series of five-minute cross-examinations. So each debater will get uh, two five-minute periods to ask the other debater questions. Um, and Daniel will start that, and Sean will go second. Uh, and they'll each have their two sections. Um, and then after that, 10-minute closings, and we'll- uh, Five-minute closings. Five-minute closings. Excuse me, we changed that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, Daniel will have the last word on that. Uh, and with that, I'd like to open us in a brief prayer. Father God, thank you for giving us this opportunity to discuss this uh, important issue in a brotherly fashion. I pray that you will give us humble minds to 
uh, reflect on, uh, on this important issue, to examine our own presuppositions, to with humility examine them and see if, that, if they are grounded in your word or not. Let the uh, self-authenticating power of your word speak uh, truly and powerfully to us, guide us in our discussion, and may it be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And with that, Sean, it is your floor. All right. Do you want to start the timer? I will. Maybe. Just uh, just so we know we're not che- I'm not cheating. All right. Three, two, one. All right. Um, bef- before we begin, I-, I would like to thank Dan for his uh, willingness to participate in this uh, friendly debate we have. Um, I hold to the confessional text position. It's called this because it comes from the uh, Westminster and 1689 Confession of Faith, Confessions of Faith, Chapter One, uh, Paragraph Eight which state that the Old and New Testaments being immediately inspired and by his singular care and providence kept during in all ages are therefore authentic. And we of this position believe this is in contrast to the modern critical text position, which holds that the true text of the New Testament has become corrupt and is in the process of being restored based on an examination of surviving handwritten New Testament manuscripts, although it may never fully be restored. As Daniel Wallace, a respected evangelical textual critic notes, we do not have now in our critical Greek texts or any translations exactly what the author of the New Testament, the uh, New Testament wrote. Even if we did, we would not know it. There are many, many places in which the text of the New Testament is uncertain. Uh, this, and that comes from uh, Gurian Hickson's book, uh, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. This uncertainty is due to the fact that uh, Comparing manuscripts that are written long after the time of the originals and that frequently contradict each other uh, do not give one certainty unless it is coupled with the idea that God most certainly has preserved his word and he has made that preserved word identifiable. Dan and I both believe in a form of preservation. The question is, however, is this a general preservation or a preservation down to the individual letter? Additionally, there's also the question of if the Bible has been preserved, where is that preserved word of God to be found? I'm going to argue that the preservation is down to the letter. Additionally, I will demonstrate that the church, at least in part, has always had access to the uncorrupted word of God, and we can find the preserved New Testament in what's commonly called the Textus Receptus, or TR. Uh, So let's get started with the uh, biblical data on preservation. Um, God cares about his word remaining uncorrupted, and he tells us not to add or to remove to it. Um, Some Old Testament examples of this would be Deuteronomy 4.2 and Proverbs 36. And in the New Testament, we have Revelation 22, 18 and 19. So God is very much concerned that his word remain uncorrupted. And obviously he has the power to uh, keep that from happening. Um, I do want to focus on one main text and a couple of other texts. The main text being uh, John 10, 35. So that reads, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the father hath sanctified and set into the world, thou blasphemest because I said, I am the son of God. So in context, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees who don't like the fact that he's called himself the son of God. In fact, they're, they're in the process of picking up stones to stone him. Um, Jesus' argument to the Pharisees rests on the idea that because the scripture calls human judges gods, it's appropriate for Jesus to be called the son of God because he is actually so. However, in doing so, he reminds them that they can't get around this fact because the scripture cannot be broken. That's the words he used. The scripture cannot be broken. Now, Jesus' main point here was not on textual criticism, but I think the implications of this passage uh, are applicable. With an indeterminate or errant scripture, the scripture is broken. We couldn't proclaim 
we couldn't proclaim biblical truths from parts of scripture because we don't know if we have the authentic word or not. I've even heard Christians who believe in modern textual criticism say that no point of doctrine should be derived from textually uncertain uh, passages. Uh, under this logic, if Psalm 82 were to have doubtful textual evidence, Jesus shouldn't have made his point off it. It doesn't have textual issues, as far as I'm aware. I tried looking into it briefly. But if God isn't concerned with preserving his word exactly, we can't make exegetical points with the confidence that our Lord did. And the fact that the church used to hold some of these passages, some passages of scripture, such as the ending of Mark or the story of the woman caught in adultery, but now modern textual criticism declares them to be unoriginal, uh, this shows that we uh, could be wrong about what is and isn't scripture, and thus all of scripture is actually suspect. If we were to find 100 early manuscripts buried in the sands of Egypt that omitted, say, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, uh, would we be forced to conclude that it wasn't original and that the church had been wrong about what was the word of God? But we have a promise from God that the scripture can't be broken. Therefore, the true text of the Bible must have been available and recognizable to the church in every age, as they are the ones whom God is most concerned with having his word. Uh, just as the Pharisees could not refute what uh, Christ reasoned from Psalm 82, neither should anyone today be able to refute any point from any part of scripture based on the idea that we might not have the original. So just a couple of other verses that demonstrate uh, the promise of preservation. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, uh, for all the flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So the gospel word can't fall away. Uh, it endures forever, unlike the things of the natural world, like grass and flowers. God's world, word is supernatural, and it cannot help but endure forever. Uh, Matthew 5, 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jots and tittles were the smallest components of the Hebrew language. Thus, not even the smallest part of the law could pass away until heaven and earth pass. Our primary focus in this, in this debate is the New Testament, but this shows God's promise of preserving his old covenant word, which is still edifying to his new covenant people. Uh, and finally, Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. This is Jesus speaking. Um, so heaven and earth can be destroyed, but Jesus' words cannot. In context, Jesus said this during the Olivet Discourse. Uh, if his words there, words there in the discourse are incapable of being lost, are we to conclude his, his words elsewhere are? I don't think that's necessarily consistent. Um, so now having us, and uh, there are other texts we could go to, but uh, now having established that God will preserve the scriptures, how then uh, do we apply uh, this to what we see in history? Both our sides acknowledge that prior to the printing press, the hand copied manuscripts of the New Testament contain errors, both accidental and purposeful. Um, we don't know exactly what the form of the text uh, looked like at the various times in history as not all the manuscripts survived till today. And additionally, the surviving manuscripts uh, that we have, um, we don't know if they were copied by faithful men or copied by heretics who had an agenda. Uh, indeed, many of the readings of the early manuscripts disagree with quotations from early church writers that we have of either the same period or even prior. Uh, however, we do know what that church had in the 16th century, as at that time, collations of manuscripts were done uh, the, um, by faithful men, and these, editions, and these became the editions of the TR, which uh, were used in the translations uh, for Protestant churches. 
uh, the invention of the printing press then eliminated any potential of accidental copying mistakes coming into the transmission stream. Although the additions of the TR are not always 100% in agreement with one another, uh, the differences between them are, are small and finite in number compared to the differences between the TR and say the modern critical text, or even between many of the manuscripts used to generate the modern critical text. Um, based on our faith, uh, based on our faith in God's word being preserved, we should expect that the TR editions have the true reading somewhere and that it should be possible to identify which are true and which are false on theological or other grounds. As an example, I'd like to bring up 1 John 5, 7, which reads, uh, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. This is a verse in most of the editions of the TR, but not in the modern critical text. Um, and this verse is not well attested in our surviving Greek manuscript tradition, uh, being admitted from the majority of manuscripts that have 1 John and the ones that do have it being late in, uh, late in history. However, it is in the majority of TR manuscripts and without it, there would be actually be a grammatical error in the Greek. Thus, as the Holy Spirit would not inspire a meaningless grammatical error, we have to receive it as authentic. Um, the modern critical text position on the other hand, holds that since the 16th century, older and more reliable manuscripts uh, than what Christians had in the 16th century have been found, uh, which contain different readings than what are found than which are found in the TR. Uh, some of them are quite significant. Based on the idea that the text of the Reformation was corrupt, uh, they try to reconstruct what the original text was, giving priority to these manuscripts and using the axioms of textual criticism. However, there is no way from a neutral standpoint to validate whether these more recently uh, whether these more recently discovered manuscripts were used by Christian brothers or not. There's also no way to know if we currently have enough evidence to properly reconstruct the text. As I stated earlier, if the church of the 16th century lacked the necessary manuscripts, should we really expect to have them today? If God did not preserve his word perfectly to them, what confidence do we have that he would do so to us? But, and this is the key takeaway I hope everyone takes away from my presentation. God told us that he would uh, preserve his word. It would remain preserved and thus we Christians can have confidence that like those that came before us, we have access to the true words of God and can build our faith and life on that sure rock. And uh, with that, I see the rest of my time. Which was three seconds. So All right. <laughs> All right, Dan, it's uh, your floor. All right. Let me just get my notes up here. All right. I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one. Recently, there has been a resurgence in debate as it relates to the text in the New Testament. Should we use the Texas Receptus, TR, as being considered the final word of God? Those of the so-called ecclesiastical text or confessional text perspective would have us believe that the TR fits this paradigm. To be clear, I do not mean to say that my opponent is TR only. He is not. However, I believe the core arguments for both TR only as and TR preferred are the same. While I believe the modern critical text position is the best textual critical methodology, I choose not to fall into the dichotomy that the critical text or the TR is the pure word of God in and of themselves. I believe that this is a false dichotomy and should not be utilized. Critical text scholars who are Christians hold that the TR, while containing the preserved word of God, does not accurately represent the long since lost autographs or originals when taken on its own. That said, we must go where the evidence leads. Considering all of the evidence we have is important if we are to honestly view the text of the New Testament. We should not simply pick a text type 
or a specific printed Greek text based on tradition or any other means that excludes honest ex historical evidence. I believe that God has kept his word pure in all ages, as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith states. I believe his word has been preserved and kept from error. This is not, does not mean that the manuscripts were kept free from error, as plainly seen by the over 400,000 variants that show up in our manuscripts, which is more variants than there are words in the New Testament. But it does mean that in that tradition, God has kept his word pure. My brother Sean asserts in a paper he wrote called The Word of God Kept Pure First to Read in Our Language that modern textual criticism means that text has been lost due to corruption. I would like to know, though, what modern textual scholar consistently asserts that we have lost text, particularly a Christian modern textual scholar. This argument, I believe, is a straw man that presents modern textual criticism as monolithic when it is not. Look at what Kurt and Barbara Allen said about the text tenacity in their book, The Text of the New Testament. Quote, the, text, the transmission of the New Testament textual tradition is characterized by an extremely impressive degree of tenacity. Once a reading occurs, it will persist with obstinacy. It is precisely the overwhelming mass of the New Testament textual tradition, which provides an assurance of certainty in establishing the original text. It is probably quite clear that the element of tenacity in the New Testament textual tradition not only permits, but demands that we proceed on the premise that in every instance of textual variation, it is possible to determine the form of the original text, end quote. They held that we have the original readings in our textual tradition without doubt, which by implication means God has preserved his word and kept it pure in all ages. To imply that modern textual criticism as a whole means text has been lost is to misrepresent the position. What I want to do in my short time today is address some of my esteemed opponents' beliefs about the Greek text and hopefully show that the critical text is the most balanced position. First, my brother has asserted that we must determine the Greek text in the New Testament. This is in his paper the New Testament primarily by presupposition, meaning that since the scripture is our ultimate standard, we must believe it to be the case from a textual standpoint. Since this position holds the TR as a standard, we must believe that to be God's word kept from error. To argue your view of a certain Greek text by using presuppositionalism is a misapplication of Cornelius Van Til's system of apologetics. Van Til did not apply his apologetic methodology to a specific manuscript or Greek text. You find evidence for this in his book, The Defense of the Faith, on page 140 or 130 of the fourth edition. In the reference passage in his book, we see no mention of the TR or any specific Greek manuscript or text. Van Til's point has to do with the nature and authority of scripture, not a certain Greek New Testament or otherwise. Even if the rebuttal is that you're not strictly arguing what Van Til proposed, you are still utilizing his method, effectively borrowing from his worldview, ironically so, given Van Til argued the same about what the unbeliever does to the Christian worldview. And if you use the teachings of another individual, as is done here with supporting the TR position, those words and messages still carry the meaning as they were originally intended. Just like when the unbeliever borrows from the Christian worldview, the meaning of those items he is borrowing does not change just because he is not giving God the glory. When we go to apply the teachings of a man, we should be careful to use them as they are intended, not as we want them to be. Second, I want to address an inconsistency in his view of preservation and that the 16th century text was solidified. I want to uh, demonstrate his view of uh, inconsistent view of preservation using the Kama Yohania, which Sean mentioned already. He holds that the Kama Yohanium is original, which I believe creates a problem of preservation. The Kama Yohanium does not show itself in the Greek tradition until the 13th century when a Greek copy of the Latin came onto the scene. This means there's no early Greek evidence for this reading. It only appears in the Latin. If a verse does not show up in the Greek tradition until the 13th century and is later part of the text in the 16th century, doesn't that mean the verse would have disappeared for nearly 1200 years? 
Furthermore, does not this mean that the purity of the word would not have been kept by God in all ages? This means that my brother cannot hold to preservation consistently with the very Greek New Testament he espouses as containing the word of God kept pure. Even if you want to go with Erasmus, whose work was part of the TR, he did not include the Kamiohanium in his Greek New Testament until his third edition and still had problems with it. If one of the framers of what would become the TR had issues with this verse, shouldn't that cause one to pause and consider the authenticity? Luther's German Bible did not even contain it since his New Testament was based on Erasmus's second edition. Erasmus even added readings for Revelation that were not in the Greek, but from the Latin. And doesn't this mean that Erasmus would have added to the text? Doesn't that mean there would be more than God had preserved? How is that consistent with God's word being kept pure in all ages? Now, as to the notion of a solidified text in the 16th century, Sean writes about this as well. He asserts that the text of the Protestants had was solidified with the help of the printing press. Now, Erasmus and the Reformers did not believe the Greek, New Test the Greek text of the New Testament was settled or solidified in their time, as evidenced by the fact that not all of the TRs of the day even agreed with one another. For instance, in Luke 17, 36, Erasmus omitted this verse, but Beza kept it. John Calvin, who was one of the Reformers, did not believe in a solidified or finalized text either as evidenced by his own changes in the TR of the time through conjectural emendations, and he did this in two different places, in the book of James and the book of 1 John. Reconstruction had to be done to the text. Weren't the reformers and Erasmus the ones who challenged Rome's view of scripture being preserved in the Latin Vulgate? Weren't they the ones who were reconstructing Greek manuscripts as part of the humanist Renaissance mindset of going ad fontes back to the sources? How are TR advocates not falling into the same position Rome did by advocating for a text that was used by the Protestant church and blessed great, being blessed greatly by God? There were those who questioned Erasmus's view of inspiration in relation to his Greek New Testament, as noted in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and Erasmus' life, quote, critics of Erasmus's New Testament edition accused him of introducing changes to a sacred text and thus challenging the principle of inspiration. Erasmus denied these charges. On the contrary, he said his edition restored the original text and corrected the errors introduced by translators and scribes. In conclusion, preservation of the scriptures is especially important. If there is no preservation of God's word, there can be no confidence that the New Testament teaches, and therefore we cannot know what God has told us. Our faith would have no ground without the scriptures. But holding on to false notions of what the Greek New Testament should look like leads us into misrepresenting history, and we must not fall into such historical fallacies. And I yield my time. All right. Uh, well, uh, I'm just guess, curious, what did I come out to in terms of my time? So you were just under eight minutes. Oh, okay. So um, I don't know if you want that time back at the end section. Uh, I don't really care. All right, well, up to you. If you feel like you want it at the time, I'll let you have it. Uh, but with that, we'll go to the next section, which will be uh, as soon as I get my, uh, my time here, right? Hold on. Which will be the cross-examination. So, Dan, you'll be going first, uh, asking questions of Sean. And uh, I will remind you both again, and just so it's clear to our listening audience, this is a time to ask questions. This is not a time to make assertions for the person who's asking the questions. And for the person who's receiving questions, it's not a time for them to ask questions, but to answer. And the only questions you can ask are clarification or for clarification. And with that, uh, you can uh, start, Dan. All right. So, Sean, um... You know, you, you say that the TR is the, contains the preserved word of God. I'm curious, which version of the TR do you believe is the preserved word of God without error and why? 
So I'm not even saying it is one particular edition of the TR, but that it is contained in the stream that we would call the TR. Like you, you, you correctly mentioned, um, not every single edition of the TR has the Kamiohami in it. Right. Um, but I would say that based on the logic of faith, that because we have a general idea of what it's going to be, we can compare the editions of the TR and it should be identifiable what the true reading is out of those uh, editions. So in the example, first John five, seven, it is in the majority of editions of the TR and it, uh, without it, there's actually a, a, a grammatical error in the Greek and um, on theological grounds, I can't have a meaningless grammatical error in my Greek text. So I don't think the Holy Spirit would have inspired that. Okay. You asserted in your paper uh, that the New Testament text was solidified in the 16th century with the help of the printing press. So what was done before the printing press to determine original readings? And did the church not have the true readings because of the lack of the printing press and therefore a lack of a solidified text? So when I say solidified text, I mean in the sense of it's now not possible for mistakes to enter in, copious mistakes, I should say, to enter into the textual transmission stream. It's solidified in that sense. Obviously, prior to that, we do have handwritten manuscripts. And because of the nature of handwritten manuscripts, it's just more likely, accidentally, you're going to in, um, uh, allow a, a mistake to enter in. Uh, the text is stabilized because of the printing press. So now you don't have that kind of error. Um, was there a second part to your question, or did I fully answer No, that, that? answers it. OK, all right. Yeah. Um, do you think that Erasmus believed his work should have been the final authority um, in the way that you're presenting the TR as the final authority? Perhaps not. Um, I'll be honest. I, when it comes to Erasmus, um, I do think he did very good work and was very helpful and that he was providentially guided. But um, like there's there's issues. Um, he was he's sort of uh, credibly accused of maybe being a closet Arian. And that's why First uh, John 5, 7 might have been left out. Uh, initially, at least, until he had a manuscript that actually demonstrated that it was original. Um, so, but I'm not basing my determination that the TR is valid because Erasmus believed it is valid. I'm basing it on the logic of faith, looking at history to see where would I find what the preserved word of God looks like. Whether or not Erasmus believed it himself is not relevant to me. Don't you think it would be relevant, though, considering he was essentially doing the same thing we're doing today with regards to trying to find what the author originally said, especially going against the Roman Catholic Church status quo at the time? So I'm not sure that he would have believed exactly the modern axioms of textual criticism. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sold that he would have viewed it as completely corrupted or not. Not that you would view it as completely corrupted, but corrupted and needing re restoration being uh, the axioms of textual criticism. Uh, he obviously was comparing manuscripts and doing a form of textual criticism that I would agree with. Uh, I think it was uh, mostly theologically based and not necessarily based on a, a naturalistic, um, well, the text has been corrupted by X processes. Let's, um, let's try to reconstruct it. Okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, do you believe that the church in all places and ages had the scriptures as Dr. Riddle has asserted um, explicitly? He's added the, the notion of all places in addition to all ages. I'm just curious so, if you believe that. That's a tough one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat that. I, I, I hope I know what he's getting at. Perhaps not. But um, uh, like, for example, uh, for example um, take 
England in the 14th century. You're either going to have the Latin Vulgate or you're going to have uh, John Wycliffe's translation, which was done off the Latin Vulgate, which I view to be a corrupt text. So that portion of the church may have very well not had access. Or if there were Greek manuscripts floating around in there, and I believe there were actually some Greek manuscripts, just because there's one floating around England just because uh, doesn't mean that one layman in the church in like a field somewhere has access to it. But as a general, generally on the whole, yes, the church would have had access to all the true readings. Okay. And that's all I have, Andrew. All right. Okay, Sean, it is your turn to uh, cross-examine. Okay. Let me bring up my questions here. Yeah. Um, Three, two, one. Okay, so uh, would you agree with me that uh, John 1035 uh, implies that the Bible must be perfectly preserved to all generations of the church? Yes, I would. Okay, um, so uh, would you, what, let's see. Um, so would you say that uh, Psalm 82 contains any core doctrine to the Christian faith? Um, to be honest, I don't remember the passage off the top of my head. Um, so I can't really speak to that. However, um, I don't believe there's a textual variant there and I don't believe it would be any issues with regards to core doctrine. Okay. But I would have to go back and look at it. Okay. So when you say that, um, God has preserved his word, what text would you go to? Cause you said you're not necessarily always 100% in agreement with the, uh, the, uh, modern critical text. Right. So in terms, I would look at the Old Testament, like you referred to, I think I would agree with the passages that you used, I believe. Um, and I do think that Kurt and Barbara Allen, who were, Kurt Allen was um, probably the textual critical scholar of the 20th century. And although he did have some theological issues, he did believe that we do have all of the original readings in our textual transmission, uh, which I believe we do today. Okay, so you, you do believe that we have all the original Yes, I do. I believe we have all the originals. I do not believe there's any text that has been lost. Um, what would give you that confidence that we have all the readings for today? Um, I think really just the, the mass of evidence that we have. You know, we have, in, in, at least in the Greek tradition, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Um, I think the consistency we see throughout the textual transmission um, gives us great confidence that we have the original readings. Um, so, and I believe that we have them with 100% certainty. Oh, okay. So you do believe 100% certainty. Yes, so I do. You um, don't believe that we could dig up new manuscripts and that would actually change the form of the text because we're, we're basically certain we have all the, uh, the correct, the, the manuscripts that allow us to reconstruct the text at this point. Yeah. In terms of, in terms of lost texts, I, I believe there's no new readings that are going to come out. That's going to be added to the text. I believe that what we have is what was originally written. Mm -hmm. So in the 16th century, I, I assume you would be of the opinion that they didn't have enough textual evidence. Uh, the reformers like Beza and Stephanos did not have enough textual evidence to properly reconstruct the text. Agreed. Um, so if it wasn't available to them in the 16th century, why would you say it's then therefore we have enough today to reconstruct it properly? So I think it, it's more that they, they had it. It was just a matter of picking which readings were actually original. Um, now, in the case of Erasmus, Erasmus um, did not have a complete book or a complete copy of the book of Revelation. The last leaf had fallen out, actually. 
And so he had to back translate from the Latin into the Greek and therefore created readings that did not exist before. Um, and, and so I think he had the original text in terms of, um, of the overall tradition, but in terms of what he specifically had access to, um, I think there were some issues, especially like I just said, with adding text that had not been there before. Okay, so from your view, everybody in the 16th century had all the correct text, they just didn't have enough information necessarily to put it all together properly. Yes, that's what I would say. Would you say that therefore today we very well might not have all the information, we might not have enough evidence to put everything together properly? No, I believe that we do. I believe, so I, I think there are certain verses and readings that might be in dispute, but I believe that we can look at the variants as they have. We have the original reading mm -hmm. and we just have to work out which one is specifically the original, but it, that does not therefore follow that text was lost or it, the text itself has become corrupted um, in terms of the original reading. Um, would it surprise you to know that, I believe it's in the NA28, but one of, one of the additions that um, there are sections that are marked as indeterminate that the uh, committee could not determine what the original reading was? No, that wouldn't surprise me. And I don't see that as inconsistent. Okay. Um, I've got 30 seconds. Because left. having, oh, because sorry, having, having an original reading in your variants does not, and not knowing which one was actually original does not mean that text was lost. I see, um, I see no inconsistency in holding to that view. All right. 15 seconds. I'm not going to ask another question. Oh, okay. We got another section. So, yep. Um, all right, Dan, it's your turn at bat again. All right. Um, so, Sean, why do you believe uh, that reconstructing the text by modern textual scholars is fundamentally different from what Erasmus did or Beza or Stephanos? Um, because they're unwilling to allow theological categories to determine the text. Um, it would be anathema for someone today to look at, say, 1 John 5, 7 and be like, well, grammatically, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so I'm going to keep it in there because from their perspective, they're trying to be neutral. They're not allowing the idea that, well, this isn't the inspired word of God. There might not be a, um, a uh, uh, there might, they don't view it as the inspired word of God necessarily. So they might be willing to allow that there are actual mistakes or actual contradictions in there. In fact, it's to the point where um, if something seems contradictory, it's more likely to be the, the reading. The, one of the axioms of modern textual criticism is the harder reading is probably preferred because they assume a scribe would try to make it an easier reading. So um, if they see something that is actually contradictory in the text, they'd be like, oh, that's the correct reading because obviously it's the harder reading that supports that. Okay. So how is your view of the comma? So you, you, you have the grammatical side of it, but in terms mm -hmm. of the external evidence, how do you think that is consistent with your view of preservation in light of that we don't have any early Greek manuscript evidence and it only shows up in the Latin and doesn't come into the Greek tradition until much later? So I don't have the view that um, the church, we are going to have uh, manuscripts that show exactly what the state of the, man, of, uh, the Greek uh, manuscripts were in every age. So it doesn't necessarily bother me that we might not have representatives from say the fourth century or the fifth century. Um, we do have uh, patristic quotations from that era, so we know that it is um, uh, it is that old. But just because we don't have any surviving manuscripts uh, doesn't bother me. First John five seven is also actually uh, an interesting one because the Catholic epistles in general we just don't have a lot of manuscripts for. For example, uh, the papyri are brought up uh, often as being um, uh, as helping to determine the text, but 
there's only two uh, partial manuscripts of First John in the papyri, none of which actually contain the section that would have First John 5, 7. So we're dealing with a, a very incomplete idea of what the state of the text was. So it doesn't necessarily bother me that I don't see it in history, um, but I do believe it was there. So you say that it was quoted by the father. So would mm -hmm. you include Cyprian in that, even though he was using the old Latin, which did not contain it? Um, the, the person I was actually thinking of was actually Tertullian. Um, I don't know Cyprian off the top of my head. I'll, I'll defer to whatever you say is, uh, Cyprian said or did. Okay. Say. Um, I think that's all I got. Oh, okay. All right, Sean, you're five minutes. Okay, so where we left off, essentially you were saying we, you, you do think that we do have enough um, evidence to properly reconstruct the text, although uh, just because there were indeterminate cases that, um, uh, that wasn't necessarily contradictory to that idea. Um, would you say that indeterminate cases uh, make the scripture broken? I do not. No, I, I believe that we can still understand what God is communicating to us in spite of the fact that in some minor areas, there are not, um, there is not 100% certainly on what the original was. But I think the problem is that you're conflating, um, it, you're conflating modern textual criticism with lost texts. And I do not believe that, um, as I quoted with, with the Allens. I believe that we have the original text and that God has preserved his word in that way. But just because I do not believe that a text cannot be fully reconstructed with 100% accuracy, even though it is near 100% accuracy, um, it does not mean I believe that text has been lost. Um, so, so I want to make that clear. Gotcha. In the case where it's one of those sections where we can't reconstruct it fully, would you say that part of scripture is broken? No, because I, I think we have it. And we can see what that, you know, we can see it in our variants. I think an example of this is in Revelation, where you have a difference between 616 and 666. One of those is the original. It's just a matter of determining what it is. And I think that is one of the areas where it's difficult. But I don't believe that means the scripture itself has been broken. Well, the I'm trying to highlight just that particular scripture. When it says the scripture cannot be broken. Well, I'm, I'm pontificating. I shouldn't do that. Um, just that section... Revelation, I think, is probably an easy one, but in a section where it's truly indeterminate, is that section of scripture broken? No, I don't believe so, because we do have the original text in those variants. So, okay. Um, so do you think we should use theological categories to determine the text? No, I don't. Um, and I think what your position and Pastor Riddle and Pastor True Love have done is inadvertently hijacked the presuppositional apologetic methodology and tried to apply it to a textual critical methodology, which I believe is a category error in a misrepresentation of Van Til's um, apologetic. Um, okay. So uh, do you believe that we are actually able to reconstruct what the text looked like in various points of history? So not, not necessarily today, but we can know, say, in the ninth century, what the state of the text looked like. Yes, I think so. Okay. Yep, I, I think we can do that. Um, you know, in the ninth century, you had the Byzantine mm -hmm. tradition come on the scene primarily. Um, so I think we can see what the text looked like in that time. Um, uh, let me switch to the, the fourth century because it's easier in, in my opinion. We have uh, uh, two, essentially two almost or complete uh, manuscripts of that century um, out of we don't know how many. 
how many manuscripts would you need in order to be reasonably confident of we know accurately what the text of that century looked like? So I wouldn't have a specific number, um, although I think the importance of those manuscripts is highlighted in the fact of how they were written. They were in the codex form. They were highly used by the fact that, especially the Codex Sinaiticus was um, edited quite a bit, which means it was used quite a bit. The fact that it was a codex in the form that it was written means it would have been widely used at the time. Um, and there is even some historical evidence, although I'm not, I don't know how accurate it is. And I think there is some question with regards to Vaticanus that it may have been a Bible that was commissioned by um, Constantine, although I, I think that might be kind of shaky. Um, so I, I can't give you um, a specific number of what I would um, of what I would determine as helping with being original, but um, I think that its dating and its usage are helpful in um, giving weight. Um, so I believe the statistic is that um, the that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus actually disagree with each other more in terms of readings um, than do either one. Uh, with the TR, uh, given the fact that there is a lot of disagreement, would you still consider them that they're they're good, accurate representations of the text state in that century? Yes, I, I think they were, um, and it, and I don't think it would be accurate to compare the TR with regards to those manuscripts because the TR is obviously going to be consistent with itself because you're using the TR to look at the TR. Um, but yes, I do believe that those are are accurate representations of the text at the time. All right, let's talk. Okay. So Sean, do you have five minutes for your uh, closing statement and we'll, we'll wrap this up. All right. So um, uh, just to briefly address um, one of Dan's points that um, I'm using uh, presuppositionalism when Van Til himself didn't uh, use that. Uh, I'm not a presuppositionalist because of Van Til. Obviously, I do think he's the person in the modern era that um, is responsible for a lot of presuppositional thought, but I'm presuppositional because I think the Bible teaches it. And by the same extension, I think the Bible does teach the type of preservation I'm talking about. Um, and that'll lead into uh, my closing statement here. Um, I do think that if you have a text that um, it's indeterminate, at that point, the scripture is broken. You're not able to make a, uh, a core, or you're not able to present doctrine off of that. There are plenty of uh, Christians out there, um, James White being one of them, that will tell you that you should not uh, base a, uh, a doctrine or a teaching off of uh, a manuscript or a uh, reading that's in dispute. And at that point, the scripture is broken. Uh, we, can't, we can't use it as it was intended. Um, God intended us to have the complete scriptures. Uh, we know that all scriptures God breathed and profitable for correction, reproof. Like all of the scriptures are, 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 benefit, are beneficial to us to lose even one of them. Uh, would be in a uh, would be a, a travesty. Um, I think a good example of this that uh, people would recognize and bother them is if um, we were to lose, um, say, the uh, the Book of Jude. Um, now, obviously, Jude doesn't have anything in it that we'd say is core doctrines. The message of Christianity would say the same, but Christians would immediately be like, "Oh no, we can't lose Jude. There's so much good good truth in there for uh, for us to benefit from." So I think that's important. Uh, Dan brought up the fact that he doesn't think that um, just because a text is indeterminate that we've lost it. And I think they're, they're, they're practically the same. If you don't know what the text is, if the church can be wrong about what a text is and base uh, 
hundreds and hundreds of sermons off of, say, the longer ending of Mark, or the ending of Mark, uh, uh, and be wrong about that. We have no, we have no confidence that what we're saying to, uh, what we believe the text is today is actually the text. Um, in terms of the historicity of the, uh, the manuscript evidence, I don't believe that we have enough to establish what the text looked like in history. Um, taking the examples of Vaticanus and uh, Sinaiticus, I would dispute the idea that they were necessarily well used, specifically with Vaticanus as a um, uh, for example, Erasmus didn't want to use it um, because he thought it was a, uh, a, a Greek translation of the Latin, so going from the Latin back into the Greek, and, and uh, we don't necessarily have evidence that it was greatly used. Uh, but that's two manuscripts, two complete or almost complete manuscripts in the fourth century. How many manuscripts were there in the fourth century? I don't know that anybody has a good idea, but we'll, we'll just say there was a thousand. Um, so two out of a thousand, that would be 0.02%, um, or sorry, 0.2%. Uh, are we really going to say that that's statistically significant to know what the state of the text was in that century? I don't think so. Um, and also a lot of these early manuscripts do actually contain um, Byzantine readings, uh, which are, um, which are the Byzantine text is not the exact same as the TR, but the TR you could say is a Byzantine type text. Um, where was that quotation from Metzger? Uh, sorry about that. Um, uh, so this is from uh, Bruce Metzger. During the past decades, several papyri have come to light which tend to increase one's uneasiness over Hort's reluctance to acknowledge the possibility though it would be absent from all great unsealed manuscripts. Since the discovery of the Chester Beatty papyri and the Bottomer papyrus, uh, proof is available that occasionally the later Byzantine text preserves a reading that dates from the second or third century for which there has been no other early witnesses. So the text pre-exists our earliest witnesses. And if the text pre-exists our earliest witnesses, there's no reason to be able to say with certainty, oh, these reasons didn't exist prior to this point. Um, so I want to conclude with a final takeaway. Um, God has promised the preservation of his word. Whatever we think we see in history, it must be subjugated to this fact. I think that starting with the, this biblical presupposition, we conclude that the received text of the Reformation is authentic scripture. This text is the first time in history we have a clear idea of what the form of the text available to the church was. It's then, uh, it then went on to be used by Christian men for five centuries, affirming that it is the word of God. Uh, so with that, I'd like to thank Dan for doing this with me and cede any remaining time, which is not exactly nothing. <laughs> All right, Dan, it is your turn to close. All right. And you can have two extra minutes if you want them. Okay. Do you want them? Or? No, no, it's fine. This should be pretty quick. As, the, as noted in my opening statement, uh, to believe scripture has been preserved by God is important. We must have God's word if we are to know him. I believe that his word has been kept pure in all ages. But imposing a tradition over clear historical evidence as it relates to the text and its history leads to a clear inconsistency. When, as clearly demonstrated in my opening statement, the framers of what would become the TR as we know it today did not have the same view of the text um, as uh, Sean asserts they did. There were changes made. The text was not solidified, but continued to change. Now, he mentioned um, that Erasmus did not favor Vaticanus. While that is true in some instances, um, going back to the Kama Johannium, he did try to consult it. He had a friend at the Vatican um, who he tried to uh, get to consult the, the codex on that. 
Um, as to the notion of uh, the Byzantine text being in the papyri, um, I don't see that as an issue. For instance, in Philippians 1.14, the critical text as uh, found in the Nestle Allen does um, go with a Byzantine reading. So I don't see that as inconsistent. I see it as just going where the textual evidence leads. Um, but I believe that ignoring that clear historical data um, for unfounded uh, theological presuppositions, um, I think is not helpful. Um, I think we should be truthful about the history of our text, not hide it, um, and be consistent in its application. And that's all I have. Thank you. All right. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you again, Dan and Sean, for conducting this debate. I hope this was edifying to you, listener. And uh, with that, I bid you adieu. God bless. Thank you all.